Big thanks to Arno at ALM, almk9equipment.com. That's the letter K, the number nine. Hit Arno up at A-R-N-O at almsuit.com. First-time visitors to a site, use discount code WDRADIO to receive 10% off your new tug or suit. I want to give a huge thanks to Ryan and the guys over at Tripwire Ops. Go check out their class schedule and every amazing thing it is they have to offer on the World Wide Web at tripwireops.org. That's tripwireops.org. Yeah, I'm a crazy motherfucker walking up your street. Craziest fucker that you ever see. Welcome to Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. All right, we're back. Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. I'm Ted Summers. With me again is Eric Stambro. Eric, what's going on? Uh, you know, training, training every day, training dogs every day, training humans every day, and uh, running around. Um, today it was a balmy 23 degrees, but the uh, sun was shining. Yeah, the sun was shining, so we were out tracking early and um, did a lot of tracks. I had two handlers there today. We did a lot of long, unknown tracks with different wind conditions and different, you know, different uh, surface conditions uh, to, to, for them to get a pretty good indication or idea of what their dog's going to do. So it was a lot of fun. And then, of course, uh, did some detection and then some vehicle extractions, which, you know, I like. Yeah, speaking of which, um, you know, you and I harp on training a lot and, um, you know, the difference between certification training and everything else. Uh, one of my handlers uh, Saturday had the dog at his first bite. He's been on the year almost, I've been on the street almost a year. And uh, right before I left to go to Florida to do that seminar, we did a door popper exercise with the dog. Almost identical to what happened on Saturday night. And, uh, you know, the guy stopped and it was going to be a municipal drug ticket and, he decided to get weird, and the guy ran, and Dustin or, and uh, Randall hit the door popper, and he said that he had zero, zero hesitation about what was going to happen when that dog got there. And come mm-hmm. to find out, the guy gave him a bad name. He had his outstanding warrant for a weapons charge and assault and battery, and it was definitely <laughs> a wild ride. He fought the dog. He punched ran, punched the handler. I mean, it was definitely not a normal stop. So, uh, I mean, outside of that, it's been pretty. Uh, it's been pretty tame. We're back to we're, bed. Bug dogs are almost finished. I got some explosives guys coming down next week. So or this week. So uh, we're going to be busy, busy. Great. Yeah, the bed. You can have the bed bug dogs. Hey, did you do that uh, <laughs> crossover yet? We have not. The, um, um, the real and the you know, pseudo. Uh, we have not. Once Scott had some, uh, Scott had a family issue come up. When he gets back, um, we'll probably do that. Uh, I'm going to cross them over right before he gets back, and. Uh, once they're crossed over, then I'll start doing the hotel stuff and the nursing home stuff with those dogs. But yeah, that should be in the next couple of weeks. All right. Let me know if you start itching. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> no, the Scott bugs are so gross. So tonight, uh, this is an episode that I've wanted to do for a while. And it's kind of something that I do a lot of just kind of basis because of what Scott and I do. Um, when we have handlers, everybody thinks it's bombs and drugs and biting bad guys and everything else. But we spend a lot of class time talking about why we do things the way that we do, how they should be done, why they should be done that way. And I joke, but it's not a joke, really, that we learn 
from other mistakes or from other decisions. And typically <laughs> those come out in court cases, whether it be state, uh, district court, federal, or Supreme Court. Uh, so tonight we've got uh, Ted Dawes, who uh, is an attorney based in Florida, ha- owns HITS, or runs HITS, uh, which is the huge uh, police canine conference that moves every year. I think this year it's going to be in Washington, D.C. It's going to be in August. Uh, he's going to talk about that. But we're going to cover some of the kind of the basic stuff that I think all uh, handlers uh, should be taught if they're, if they're not, and then kind of talk about some current stuff, and then we'll talk about HITS also. So, Ted, how you doing? Good. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Yes, this is an episode that Eric and I, you know, have kind of wanted to do for quite a while. And it's always the stuff that no one likes talking about, but it is, is super interesting. And, you know, I think um, it's a super important aspect of our industry that is really only focused on by very senior handlers or people to make decisions. And I don't think it should be that way. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from some of these cases, even if it's distilled down into a paragraph that a lot of these handlers need to know and if it's something as simple as like for instance we have to we have to give three announcements when we go into when we go into a house for a building search you know and it's little bitty things like that that i think is what i hope we get out of this entire episode so with that why don't you kind of give us your background with uh with the industry as a whole and how hit started and all that kind of stuff Sure. Uh, well, I uh, went to law school and graduated in uh, uh, 91 here in South Florida and became a prosecutor. And um, after I've uh, been that ever since, it's the only job that I've ever had. And I kind of formula, I got promoted after four or five years into a drug trafficking unit down here. And Florida has some nice uh, minimum mandatory drug laws, generally three, 15 and 25 year plus life minimum mandatories if you happen to commit a drug offense with a firearm. So we have a uh, specialized drug trafficking unit down here that I was promoted into. And then it just became a, uh, you know, I was the young guy, the single guy, because everybody in my unit is on call, believe it or not. So it became, uh, met a few canine handlers, became friends with a few canine handlers, and it became, they were the guys that had my cell phone number, so they were like, hey, it's 3 a.m., we got this question, we'll call Ted. <laughs> and uh, so then I had to, in my younger years, I had to get up and running, uh, up to speed on uh, canine questions and uh, what to do, and it just kind of blossomed from there. I became the... Uh, canine guy to call in the county then the canine guy to call in the south florida then the canine guy to call in florida and uh i do lecture around the country now with that so uh now i've been a prosecutor for going on 27 years and the last oh, 22 of which has been here in the drug trafficking unit in the state attorney's office down in broward county which is fort lauderdale florida awesome so you know the united states is a little different from a lot of the countries that run dogs on a large scale uh like most of europe uh, they have a lot of federal laws over there. There's very little local and state or principal laws or whatever they have. Here, we're fractured, and a lot of it is because of the way you know we have the con- we, uh, you know we have the federal constitution and the individual state constitution. So everything varies from state to state. So kind of briefly talk about the importance of <laughs> from state to state, but then also federally and how you know over the last I don't know I guess 25 or 30 years looking at it that. Our policies, whether people know it or not, have been shaped by court decisions, either from people making mistakes or people making the right call and it being affirmed. <laughs> yeah, the, um, it, it all kind of really, the Supreme Court of the United States kind of uh, got involved way back when, I think in the early 70s, with um, United States versus Place, 
which is a case that I won't, won't belabor the point, but it was a, a case that involved uh, sniffing luggage. And they basically said, well, that was okay of sniffing luggage. And then it, um, you know, it, it just evolves from there. But there wasn't a whole lot of canine case law uh, until I'm going to say roughly maybe 15 to 20 years ago, they started in on, you know, dog reliability and dog training and dog certification and can you trust a dog and, um, you know, the old uh, uh, false alert scenario was very prevalent in the defense community. So in the mid-90s, um, things were evolving because in different states and federal courts and uh, um, dogs were being challenged on the reliability and the handler and the training and things of that nature. So it became a hot ticket item about uh, how do you trust a dog and, and how do you trust the handler and um, cueing and the, the whole nine yards of you know going into training a dog and proofing off of items. And it became an overwhelming type of scenario um, to where you know they could buffalo a judge around a courtroom, and unfortunately, if you're not real skilled in the area as a prosecutor, you know, like for instance, my office has uh, 244 prosecutors down here just in my county. So if you um, you know run across the average prosecutor, they're you know, they have a basic understanding of dog law back then, but not a really good understanding, a thorough understanding of dog law back then. So, you know, it evolves to where you end up coming into what we probably all know as Illinois versus Cabalas. Right. That was dogs running around a car at a basic traffic stop. Mm-hmm. And then they, the Supreme Court basically said that you didn't have to have any reasonable suspicion. You did not have to have probable cause or any standard. The only issue there was time. And, you know, if basically right. as long as you were running your dog around, uh, deploying your dog around the, the car and you got an alert while the ticket was being processed um, and there was no extension of time or le- lengthy period of time, it was just an ordinary issuance of a ticket, uh, you could run a dog or have a dog be run around a car at a traffic stop. And um, that was uh, kind of the launching pad for uh, the Supreme Court to get involved in canine law. And um, they've been a little bit more involved in it uniquely since it's such a, a niche in law enforcement. Um, uniquely, there's been, you know, a few cases now that have come along um, about dog, dog reliability, dog sniffing houses, traffic stops, the use of the dog, reasonableness of time. So it's it's kind of all evolved into a, a hot ticket item because I, I think dogs now are utilized so much more than they were 20 years ago. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny because I have a really good friend here in, in Tulsa uh, that works for the federal, the Eastern District here, or I'm sorry, yeah, the Eastern District uh, Federal Courts here, and he's a he's a defense, he's defense attorney. And, you know, he jokes with me. He says, you know, dogs are just walking probable cause. And he kind of <laughs> is like, you know, I, he doesn't even really bother. He's had a couple of times where he wants me to look at something, and I'm like, you should probably not mess with the dog <laughs> like to go find something else because it's, you're not that's an uphill battle right you know and he's just like okay the dogs are just walking probable cause anyway which you know so we've had all this case law that kind of builds up to the last big decision well one of the last big decisions we had uh just to, uh, in 2013 was florida versus harris 
Yeah, Florida versus Harris was a case that I was involved in down here with the Attorney General's Office of the state of Florida. And I'll say that I was a part of the team, so to speak, that worked on that case that fought it through um, our our state district court and then uh, where we lost and then our state Supreme Court where we lost. And then we, uh, I wrote a certiorari brief along with the Attorney General's office uh, to the United States Supreme Court, and we were very fortunate to get a hearing before the United States Supreme Court. And just so all the listeners can kind of grasp when I say very fortunate, uh, the statistically, uh, the United States Supreme Court only hears 1.8%, uh, so less than 2% of the cases that they're re- requested to actually have a hearing on. That means over 98% or 98.2% to be precise. Um don't get their hearing they just get to they just get their request denied so um they only hear something that they deem to be of real importance and real significant to um the continuity of the law of the united states so we got lucky on that one and ironically in the same term at the same time we had florida versus jardines which we can talk about them both but that was uh dog sniffing houses which i actually worked on with the attorney general's office and um filed a certiorari brief and uh, got it granted also. So uh, then filed merit briefs and attended both arguments. Um, So it was a very interesting time back then about having two Florida cases go to the United States Supreme Court, uh, both on, you know, narcotics reliability for Harris and, you know, dog sniffing houses for Jardines. So, yeah, on the Harris decision, the court, uh, you know, the Supreme Court, um, they unanimously decided that, you know, when the Florida Supreme Court erred, when they decided to create a strict evidentiary checklist for their definition of what an alert should or shouldn't be and everything else. So what's the background on this and, you know, what ended up happening yeah. and what's what is the big takeaway for everybody? Yeah, well, the Florida Supreme Court, uh, which is just so everybody, you know, this is just the background of what they ruled. They ruled five to two that, um, and some of your older handlers that might be listening, um, they probably remember the days of what I call calculating statistics. And you'd have to go through a year's worth of records, or maybe in some cases, you know, five years worth of records, and you'd be counting an alert with no fines, you'd find an alert with drugs found, and you'd be f- f- like an alert with I would call some kind of extra tangible evidence, like maybe the guy confessed and said, oh, I, I just got done smoking a joint, you know, five minutes ago, but you know, it's just a odor still here or something like that. And you'd right. be calculating, the court would want you to run through and say, okay, you've got 563 deployments, you've got, you know, 100 of them with no fines, you've got 130 with fines, and you've got a hundred, another 130 with uh, no fines, but some type of other tangible evidence. Uh, maybe there's paraphernalia or a pipe or something along that line so in the car or an admission or something where the in the car that would suggest that you that would support the dog's alert as being justified. And of course, then you the courts would make you go through this exhausting kind of statistical analysis. Um, okay, well then uh, my dog is, and there'd be a number cranked out, you know, uh, 73% correct. And then, but that also built in the philosophy, which we've tried in the industry to get really get rid of. Uh, and I hope anybody that's listening is 
hopefully gotten rid of this term in their testimony or in their records or in their certifications or their training or whatever they're doing is the old term a false alert because oh, yeah. Harris was, yeah Harris was a monumental um um, decision in getting rid of the term false alert. The court actually recognized that, you know, the dogs are odor dogs. They're not tangible, finding real dope dogs. And they said that, you know, there are occasions where we've all probably in the industry walked dope as handlers. I got a nice story I can tell you that happened down here in Florida that would probably give everybody a good laugh about walking dope. Um, you may have it so small somewhere that you may have overlooked it because, as I say, when I lecture, maybe you miss the crack rock that's down there next to the McDonald's French fry that's been sitting underneath your passenger seat for 90 days. And then, um, you know, then there, obviously there is somebody that could have smoked dope in the car. Dope could have just been recently down here. Dope's really prevalent, so cocaine. You could have had somebody just had a hidden trap and just delivered the kilo of cocaine and then get pulled over to a traffic stop, and you have that odor still prevailing in the car and the trap. And just because it's been recently removed, in any of these circumstances that I just mentioned, the court actually wrote in their opinion that there's nothing false about any of those. Um, so the court actually recognized the scenario of odor is odor, and there's nothing false about it. So to say that there is a false scenario go going on in a real-world deployment, so basically just because you don't find any tangible drugs doesn't mean the dog was wrong. So the theory of something false or a negative connotation in your records or a negative connotation in calculating statistical error factors of you know, 73% right is really way off base. And it's not fair to the dog. It's not fair to the handler. So that was a huge, like you said, unanimous. Yeah, I always say if I can get Ruth Bader Ginsburg to uh, vote for a law enforcement officer, uh, I've done something. I've, I've moved. I've moved a boulder that only Superman could probably move. So, in the unanimous verdict uh, decision, um, Harris uh, really was a monumental decision um, for. Um, canines and law enforcement, because basically the court pointed to certifications and in your initial training when you get your dog from a vendor, and then what I call your weekly maintenance training. So in all those controlled settings, the court says that's where you look to determine dog reliability in a court for like a motion to suppress or something along that lines for a narcotics dog. Yeah, and they determined that it's completely conceivable for a dog to be 100% accurate in certifications, but then, I don't remember what the number is, but then there's a, an acceptable amount of training where, you know, you don't have a quote-unquote a false alert, but you have, you know, a dog with it alerts to where there is no trace of physical substance that would cause the dog to alert. And uh, I don't remember what the number is, but, you know, I mean, because you'll hear a lot of times, because like you just said, you know, everybody has that, they don't want to admit that the dog has a false alert or is this or is that. And, you know, you'll have a lot of defense attorneys say, well, how often is your dog wrong? And I tell my handlers, I was like, I don't, because Oklahoma is one of the 10 states that has a mandatory certification standard. And I tell him, I'm like, tell him he's never wrong. Correct. I believe that wholeheartedly because it's a it's a stomp your feet if you go back to when you were like five years old. It's a did to did to did to did to did not did not type of argument um, because of Harris and Harris is really in the handler's corner um, because 
if you're training and you're proofing and your weekly training and your initial uh, when you got your dog from your vendor and your yearly annual certification um i mean if your dog's hitting it every wednesday night and it does it goes 10 for 10 in its annual certification and you've been out there um you know with that dog for five years and let's just assume the dog goes 10 for 10 for your 50 for 50 in certification and i you know would venture to guess that your dog probably hits what uh where you hide it and what you're trying to find whether it's in a school room or in a license plate of a car or luggage or whatever you're doing when you're running your dogs on uh, wednesday night and uh, weekly training that your dog is highly successful in finding the training and since it's known for known in the sense of it's known where there, there's dope and where there's not dope, where something's hot and something's not hot, you can determine the error factor or, or whether a dog is making an actual mistake or not. But my general scenario, which uh, um, I, I say, I, I, I look at it when dogs are making, I use, you can't see me, I'm using air quotes, but when, the, when there's a mistake, <laughs> I, I think it generally, it really falls back on the handler probably either uh, not reading the dog correctly, not reading the signs, um, you know, not seeing all the change of behavior, but then seeing some type of, you know, distracting odor that they're not trained to, but maybe calling it an alert. Um, you know, just there's a, there's a myriad of factors that are involved. And in, I think most of the errors, if something is called an alert and it turns out to be truly an error, like in a, con- in a controlled testing environment, it probably falls back on the handler. Yeah. So <clears throat> back when um, when I was handling a dog on the street, we would get called from time to time by the drug units, mostly at a house that they were investigating for grow operations. And we would take the dogs and run them around the house. <clears throat> Typically, if the dog was going to alert, it would be on the dryer vent or um, something, you know, some other avenue of, of air exiting the house. And sure. probably... I don't think I ever had an alert that didn't lead to a large grow operation. Um, I never really cared for doing those searches just because uh, of the of I just didn't want to get shot by the guy out of his house. However, um, that was kind of the impetus of that type of thing from Jardines. Am I correct? Yeah, Jardines was a Dade County case, which is just the county south of me uh, in Miami. And really what was going on in that case um, back in the heyday when the uh, – uh, housing market was crashing and you could, uh, you know, get a mortgage for a dollar or something. So whatever the hell crazy stuff was going on back then, um, drug dealers were uh, acquiring multiple houses because banks were foreclosing and the banks didn't want to be in the uh, landlord business. So you just make the bank a good offer. You pay, believe it or not, like interest only on the payments. And the next thing you know, your five-bedroom house in a really upscale neighborhood, um, the bank would never check on the property. They would tear the living uh, you can say it. hell out, <laughs> hell out of the property. And um, every bedroom was a grow house. The uh, living room was a grow <laughs> grow house. The, the garage became a grow house. So what happened in Dade County, they were getting so many of these houses converted into grow houses um, through their tip line and the helpline and things of that nature, crime stoppers, that they um, would get narcotics units together uh, at night and along with a dog. And they would, like, say, divide them up into um, you know four groups of eight with a dog. And they'd take 10 tips a piece, like 40 tips. 
and they'd go out and utilize the dog at night and just really let the dog uh, run up and down the most of the time the garage or the front door area of the house at like two, three, four in the morning. And if the dog alerted, they would follow up on that as an investigation and say, okay, well, there's likelihood of a grow house. If the dog did not alert, they would throw that one on the back burner because they had plenty of alerts. Um, so it was really just a way of kind of uh, filtering out tips on, on grow houses and which ones were productive to follow up on because of the dog alert and which one the dog didn't alert, they would just really not follow up because they had plenty of houses to hit. Um, to, and so Jardines was really, boil it down to its simplest form, was uh, can you go on private property um, to run a dog and sniff a house uh, to further your narcotics investigation? So and, uh, ironically, in a um, five to four opinion, uh, we lost that. Basically, they invented, if I can be so bold to say, um, that you're not going to you know, swallow the cod liver oil, nor, nor are our listeners, but they're going to say that if you and I go up to a house as two partners, two human beings, to do what I'm sure most of us are familiar with is a knock and talk. You walk up to the door and you say, hey, how you doing? Uh, I'm Detective Smith. This is my partner, Detective Jones. Uh, we have some information that you may be growing marijuana. We're here to investigate. Uh, would you consent to a search of your house and blah, blah, blah. And the people either consent and then you make an arrest or they tell you to go pound salt, shove the door, and that's the end of your investigation because it was a knock and talk. And they, actually, they actually wrote in Jardines, that was still okay. Hmm. That is permissible. That's not. There's nothing wrong with that investigative technique. Now, you flip that around. They are, but they held in Jardines. If you take a trained narcotics dog to do a criminal investigation, and the dog has walked up through the yard to the, get to the um, garage or the front door. Then you sneaky police officers taking that trained narcotics detect the dog up there for a criminal investigative purpose became trespassers as soon as you stepped onto that private property 30 feet ago. And then as you traverse that uh, front yard 30 feet to get to that front door, you're still trespassers. So therefore, you're not in a lawful position to sniff the front door or the garage, let's say, um, because you're not lawfully present. So they invented this theory, um, and I call it like it's like swallowing cod liver oil, that two humans could go up there. Mm -hmm. Maybe let's just mm -hmm. so you're so you're, everybody can get kind of grasp this, which is mind-boggling. But this is how the Supreme Court actually works. Sometimes they actually, I personally believe, with my training and experience, that they work backwards. They probably took a vote. Five of them said, we just don't want police officers walking around neighborhoods with dogs at night. So how do we get there without screwing up the dog law and, and getting rid of dogs and causing chaos? So they invented this theory. So if you can follow me, if you and I go there, we knock on the door, we make physical contact. I introduce myself. I show my badge and my identification. I confront them with a, a allegation that they're involved in a grow house. And then I legally ask them for consent, and they give it to me or they don't give it to me. They said that's okay. But if I go up there at night, I never – at 2 a.m., 
I never knock on the door. They never know I'm there as a police officer. They don't know. They're not confronted with an allegation. They're not confronted with my identification uh, and my badge. They're not confronted with the possibility of consenting or not consenting to two police officers. They're there talking to them to legally search or to tell them to go pound salt. But, and so they never even know we're there. But my dog just sniffs the bottom of the door. We're trespassers. <laughs> Yeah, Which uh, <laughs> is is kind of it's hard to swallow for if you haven't been to law school it's hard to swallow uh, because it just does not make sense to the every average John Doe that none knows enough law to scratch their head and that's a head scratcher. So what they did was they just decided they didn't want to mess with Kabbalists they didn't want to mess with dogs in general they didn't want to make sniffing a search. They didn't want to interrupt the United States versus place about dog sniffing luggage from 30, 40 years ago. So they invented the trespass theory. So if you're not pre- you're not lawfully present, which makes sense, if you're not lawfully present, then you're uh, you don't have the ability to be present to sniff. So the bottom line is, I think that they uh, invented uh, a way out there. So they leave homeowners alone and still leave cars and luggage and trains and parcels and everything else that you do still viable. So that's my, my two cents on that one. So, um, has there ever been any follow-up cases on using the dog in the hallways of apartments to sniff apartment doors like that curtilage? Yeah. Yeah. We're very fortunate. Uh, we being the United States, it has not been extended uh, to anything else other than real property. And when I mean real property, I'm talking tangible grass and front yards that um, now if somebody, just to be clear, if somebody has like a literally a no trespassing sign, no solicitation sign, or they have a fence that's shut, you know, you, you can't be hopping those or going through them. But if you have just an open yard, um, um, uh, they're limiting that to a real house with real property and real grass. It has not been extended into condos with common hallways. It's not extended into apartments with common hallways. It has not been extended into, um, you know, any other area that you would really talk about that is in the course you're going to see me keep saying it into an area of what's called common hallways. So um, most of your apartments, your condos, um, all that stuff, uh, your hotels, um, if you share a common hallway and you're lawfully present, uh, Jardines does not prevent you from deploying your dog there. Now, the only thing I can think of for those of you that um, may be thinking about some type of building that has a buzzer system, you know what I'm talking about, where you can – you got to walk up and you got to, I know, uh, you got a building full of 20 units and before you get in, you got to, somebody's got to buzz you in. Well, then you may have an issue because obviously the door is locked. Uh, you're not going to be let in and it's obviously the interior door is not accessible to the general public until one of the owners of the building uh, lets you in. So that's the only caveat I give. If it's a, if, but if it's an open air entrance, by um, you know, outside catwalk where people walk up and down in their condos or their apartments to go to the elevator, to drop their trash off in the trash chute, to go down to the um, the common uh, washer and dryer area or the storage unit that's just you know four doors down, and anybody can walk up and down those common catwalks and they have access to unrestricted access to them, and they can get to the elevators without being buzzed in or anything because in Florida, that, this is all very common down here. 
um, then you're not restricted in any way, shape, or form from using your dog from a common area. Um, that's good federal law. I mean, there's like United, the Supreme Court of uh, North Dakota, I know, has ruled that there's no uh, right of privacy from a common hallway of an apartment building. There's a whole host of cases for apartments, condos, and hotels saying that as long as you're lawfully present, there's no uh, right of privacy from a common hallway. So we're lucky. If you're if you're walking on grass, you gotta you gotta think twice. <laughs> Other than that, Jardines uh, doesn't really affect affect uh, condos, hotels, and apartment buildings from common areas. So one of the things that Harris talks about a lot, and they reference certifications and training, and they reference a lot of these things. Now, I think there's a big misnomer with a lot of people that are either not canine handlers or general public, and even some handlers and that are just just don't know um there is no national certification standard we have i don't know at last count like 14 certification standards that are nationally recognized there's 10 states that actually have either a state certification for detection and or patrol uh, like oklahoma only has it for detection um oklahoma i know ohio has it um and eric can talk about it but there's a big misnomer amount and in that case they they specifically said you know that they recognize or that they didn't necessarily they did endorse a canine team that has recently and successfully completed training program that evaluated the dog's proficiency in locating drugs or odor um but that endorsement isn't really stated by you know they don't really state how the proficiency is determined or anything else so when you look at the states that have it you know like i'm surrounded by states like one arkansas has one oklahoma has one kansas doesn't and Louisiana doesn't even have anything, and I've got dogs in all four states. So when we talk about the certification standards, you know, we kind of fall back on a best pra- – if you don't have a state-mandated one, we kind of fall back on a best practices um, – or Scott and I do anyway – on a best practices type deal where we suggest – that you go through Napwater and NDDA or USPCA or whoever it is, if you don't already have a state mandated one. Um, so talk a little bit about the importance of doing that, even if it's not required. Right. You're, I a hundred percent agree with you. And I think the, the, the reason why the, um, nationally recognized standard by some independent organization is, I would say was the Supreme Court's preference. They didn't mandate it, but they certainly preferred it. Um, and I'll tell you why. Um, Jar, uh, excuse me, Harris does not, because um, Florida, where it came from, we have a patrol standard, but we have no narcotic standard in the state. So um, as far as mandated by the state of Florida for law enforcement. So um, most of the dogs down in our area at the time were all um, – you know, NPCA, USPCA, NAPWADA, um, NNDDA. I mean, you got uh, FLECA down here, which is the Florida Law Enforcement Canine Association. There was always, you know, CNCA out, out west. There was always somebody somewhere um, that would have a standard that was an independent body. And they really liked that independent verification because they like the philosophy that you go somewhere, there's standards and rules set up and that your dog may fail. And, you know, they're, they like the philosophy that it, it was testing the dog by an independent body and it was done 
let's just say suggested, of course it wasn't mandated, um, on a yearly basis. Now the court, i got to be candid, the court left open that since it wasn't mandated, you could go back to original training from your vendor of how your dog was put into service initially, your weekly maintenance training, and and then go through and say that because there was no standard in the state and I didn't have my dog trained, that you could then go through a reliability standard of just of your maintenance training. But it clearly was not their preference. It, they clearly looked to they all three areas were thoroughly discussed by the court and they were basically they really liked the idea that there was somebody out there that set a national standard um, at least for that particular organization and they would come in and have three judges and um, you know they came in from because they really don't they, they this was actually discussed um, amongst us all when all this was going on, you know, you really don't want your sergeant or your lieutenant, you know, saying, okay, I'm certifying our own dogs. I mean, clearly they have a vested interest in the dog's passing. Yeah, and, yeah. and you really don't want the city next door or the county that you're working in doing that either because, look, we're all compadres in the same area doing the same thing, working together, you know, probably eating dinner at night and rubbing elbows together over dog, and maybe even train together. Um, they like the idea that, you know, somebody came in from somewhere else. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be real far away. You know, somebody drove in two hours from a different part of the state, and they're a member of an organization. They're like a certifying official for that organization. They bring in three or four people with them to do it. They hide the drugs themselves. They know where it is, and they monitor and certify the proficiency of the handler and the dogs, and they really like that idea. Your prosecutors love that idea. They love to go in and present documentation from whatever national organization or state organization that you're going to have and say that the dog's been certified and here's his certification and the dog has to do, I don't know, these 11 things to be certified. And this dog went 11 for 11 only nine months ago. And, you know, and so therefore, um, you know, they passed an independent certification. It's not my police department. It's not my county sheriff's office. It's not my neighboring police department doing it. You know, these guys you know, came down from, um, you know, Orlando to South Florida, or they came down from Jacksonville to South Florida, or they came over from Tampa to South Florida, and, you know, they did a certification uh, for these folks. And they did it not based upon a local standard, but on a national standard like um, USPCA, NPCA, NAPWADA, and et cetera. Uh, the court really liked that, and they really thought um, – that was a good idea, and as do I and as do most prosecutors, because they like to go to a judge and say, look, there was some independent uh, review going on on an annual basis. And it just gives your dog more reliability, more credibility if your dog is challenged on the issue of is it a well-trained and maintained narcotics dog. It really does. It just sounds better. Yeah, there's um, like in Ohio, we're lucky we have state standards in Ohio that cover – Everything on uh, patrol side and everything on detection, either being explosives or narcotics. Now, it is not it is not required, but I can tell you, if you don't certify in Ohio, you would probably get in a case in Ohio would get eaten up in court if you went in there. And go, well, I know we have these available. I just decided not to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, you're 100% correct because it just doesn't pass the smell test. Because I would venture to guess 
a lot of, even though like we talked about Kansas, you know, I, you know, some handlers probably don't annually certify, but most probably do. And you're going to have to answer the question. Well, you know, I know this dog handler testified for me last year that he gets certified. And six months ago, this dog handler said he was certified. And you just said that, you know, it's optional and you just chose not to. And then you're going to have to answer the question, which is you're going to struggle through with a good defense attorney and, a, and an intelligent judge, which sometimes is hard to find, um, <laughs> uh, is why. You know, why would you opt not to do it? Yeah, it only we, shows that your dog is proficient, and the only negative to it is if your dog's not proficient in what it's trained to do, then it would not pass. So, you know, the question answering the question why is a tough question to answer when the vast majority of dogs do it. Yeah. All right. Well, on that, we're going to take a second to uh, talk to you about a couple of our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Ted about his HITS conference and uh, how that came about and what the future looks like for that. I want to take a second to talk about equipment selection for patrol work. One of the most important aspects of teaching and maintaining patrol functions is your equipment. Proper equipment selection and fit makes all the difference in the world when it comes to creating and maintaining patrol and sport dogs. This episode is possible in part with support from Arno at ALM Suits. Because of the importance of this equipment, I use ALM suits exclusively. I've owned one for about five years and use it almost daily at the kennel and have caught thousands of dogs and tens of thousands of bites. Arno was able to make a great fitting suit for my lanky ass and I couldn't be happier with it. Arno can take your measurements and make you a suit that would make Jacob Davis happy. <laughs> I was going to Google that to get the joke. Arno uses top quality materials and hand makes each and everything he does in his shop in Vegas. Between the top-notch materials and the handmade aspect, you're getting some of the best bite equipment in the world from ALM. The suits come in a full range of weights, from training weight to comp weight, which is what I use because I'm not a pussy and you shouldn't be either. He offers some Cavalier inserts to make the thinner suits a little safer and more comfortable, plus they keep your tattoo artist happy. He makes a full range of toys and reward tugs also. Be sure to hit him up at alnk9equipment.com. That's the letter K, the number 9, or Arno, A-R-N-O, at ALMSuits.com. Be sure to use the discount code WDRADIO for 10% off your first order. Tell him you heard it here. Now go get bit. Tripwire Operations Group. We are first responders dedicated to first responders. We believe the most highly trained create a safer America. We prepare military and first responders to protect our country by providing products, training, services, and relationships that together no one else provides. Tripwire provides virtually every type of explosive product currently manufactured. We also produce our very own binary explosive, TexPak. Tripwire provides military and law enforcement training, consulting, canine advanced training, and firearm sales and training. Folks, Ryan and the boys over at Tripwire are true badasses in the industry. Go check them out at www.tripwireops.org. That's tripwireops.org. Let me hop in here and talk about our one of our sponsors for the podcast, Southern Coast Canine, based out in New Smyrna, Florida. Southern Coast Canine has been providing better training, better results, and better dogs for over 25 years. Led by Bill Heiser and known for their excellent high-drive dual-purpose and detection dogs and outstanding customer service. They have what you want and what you are looking for. Call 1-877-903-DOGS. 
That's 877-903-3647 and speak with Bill and to discuss your canine needs today. Or visit southerncoastcanine.com. That's the letter K, the number 9. Follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Southern Coast Canine, the letter K, the number 9. Okay, so we're back with uh, Ted Doss from uh, down in Florida. It's been a great episode so far. Um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of new handlers especially need to know this canine law stuff. And um, most of them know most of it, but there's a lot of people that aren't that proficient. Um, so we're, we're great to have, uh, glad to have Ted on. So Ted, let's talk about hits. Hits is your baby, I assume, is a good way to put well, it. It's- it is, uh, along with um, Andy Wyman, who is a, a master trainer, and he works two dogs down here uh, with the Broward Sheriff's Office. Uh, Jeff Barrett, who is a uh, trainer and I think a 25- to 30-year veteran of the Lakeland Police Department, which is in central Florida. And Jeff works a patrol and narcotics uh, dual-purpose dog. And then there's Jeff Meyer who has worked a patrol dog for the Denver Police Department and currently works a bomb dog for the Denver Police Department. So the four of us got together, um, let's say, when the law was a little rocky in the 90s and said there's this whole, you know, I won't beat a dead horse, but there's this whole percentage and reliability issues and things of that nature. And uh, how can we do a dog seminar to kind of, um, you know, walk through those issues and train people and go through case law and present issues. And it has blossomed into, I think we're into our 12th year now, um, with hits. And we started off with our first one, um, in Orlando. And I think we had roughly 120, 130 handlers to where, um, Dallas two years ago, we had just over like 900 to a thousand, uh, handlers attend uh, the the hits conference in Dallas, and then last year we were in San Francisco and we were very successful. Had over 800 or 850 handlers or so there, and uh, this year in August the 14th through the 17th, we're going to be in National Harbor, Maryland, which is just across the river from Washington D.C. If you fly into uh, Washington Reagan, it's only like a 10 uh, minute Uber. And so we call it Washington, D.C. at the uh, Gaylord uh, Marriott property there in National Harbor, which is a beautiful resort area. And um, it's going to be now, you know, we we touted it as a, a conference now for dogs uh, is put on by cops for cops because uh, some of our competitors in the industry are really just out there as corporate guys banging a buck and um, really we're the ones out there that are walking the walk and talking the talk with my three police officer, canine handler partners uh, putting this on. So we do that, and again, it's August the 14th through the 17th um, in Washington, D.C. It's going to cover five classes at a time. Uh, It's three full days of classes, so we have tracks that obviously do narcotics. We have tracks that do patrol. We have a track for supervisors. We have a track for jail dogs or prison dogs. Um, you know, there are some novel stuff out there. Uh, obviously, we have a bomb dog track. Uh, we have some vet, uh, you know, safety, nutrition, and obviously vet tending to your dog if your dog were to be injured uh, classes. So it runs the gambit all over everything. There's different philosophies because we hold the philosophy that, you know, there's n- no 
direct, you know, your method and my method, uh, you know, you may not prefer my method and I may not prefer yours, but we present those methods out there so that everybody can learn of how things are done in different places and why people choose different things. We're not a strictly, you know, we're not a my way or the highway conference, so to speak. Um, and we have over 80 vendors um, wow. from, you know, uh, that are coming this this year. And um, so our vendor hall is big and our classroom stuffs are big and uh, we'd like everybody to come out to D.C. and uh, look us up. Yeah. And uh, you guys are going to give away a, uh, a, a free registration for a law enforcement handler or a military handler, correct? We, don't, we are. So that's one benefit to listen to the Working Dog <laughs> Radio podcast tonight. Mm -hmm. So you've got the inside track. Uh, we are giving away, it's a $375 value. You get a free registration on however uh, the powers that be decide to, uh, I'll use the term raffle that off or give it away. I'm sure <laughs> Alicia, there's going to be some I'm sure going to do something ridiculous. She'll figure out something. It'll be a Facebook thing or a like it thing or a thumbs up thing. I'm sure there's some yeah, kind of scenario going on. And uh, and then we'll coordinate it, and um, so that uh, handler, whoever uh, you know, wins it, wins it, and is welcome to come for the free registration for the you know th full three days. Yeah, and I think uh, Eric and Alicia and I are going to be there too. We're going to try to do some live stuff with uh, with you, yeah, and with some of the other with some of the other uh, instructors. Some yeah, stuff we've already stuff. yeah we we're already we're giving the double thumbs up on that. We're gonna have space so there's going to be some uh, live podcasting if it can be done and some uh, interviews for people to uh you know further the podcast we're going to be uh, a hits and working dog radio in sync uh interviewing process in mid-august excellent that'll be great for those who are listening to this when this comes out hits and the uh bravo three conference from um tripwire are the working dog radio home conferences those are the two that we are endorsing the most and those are the two are the only ones we're endorsing at this point and we were going to be at all those every year and because we believe in them wholeheartedly yeah in fact i think ryan is going to be an instructor this year at hits right yeah he is ryan is an instructor yeah. and a vendor so tripwire will yeah. be a um, be present at hits uh and uh he's uh, excellent at what he does yeah he's going to do the hme class for canine handlers i think or yeah that's right yeah he's doing the hme thing so yeah Yep. And if you guys, uh, handlers, listen, if you haven't been to one of these HITS conferences, um, you should really, really give it a chance, especially over here on the East Coast. I mean, Washington, D.C. is an easy drive for everyone. Uh, it, it doesn't take that long to get most places on the East Coast. It's five to eight hour drive at the most. You could take your dog, uh, unlike going to Vegas where you can't, no, nobody brings a dog. So this is one. There's going to be a lot of opportunities for things. Um, I sent handlers over the years there um they've learned things talking to the instructors on the side away from even the topic of the class that they've brought back to me and i've i changed completely changed the way i do obedience during a basic class because of a conversation one of my handlers had with your guy from denver um it changed everything sped everything up for me and completely um altered the way i do my my training just from a 15 minute conversation on the side yeah, just so the listeners know, we stress 
uh, really hard to our lecturers because we vet them and we rotate them at least like 50% of them around every year. So we're never the same. We move the conference around the country year to year. That's why you heard Dallas and then you heard San Francisco. Now you heard Washington, D.C. We move it around uh, the country and uh, we we preach to them no infomercial. Uh, it's not like, you know, hey, buy a dog for me, and then if you call me on the phone or come to my property, I'll tell you the secret. Or, you know, uh, I'll only give you 50% of the information and buy my book or, <laughs> or buy my CD right. or something. Uh, we, we stress to them no infomercial. We're really into the scenario of um, offer training, be open-minded, answer questions, be accessible, and it's been a real success for us. Uh, under that business model of uh, let's go out there and uh, and and give the information that's be valuable, answer questions, and, and and let's train the folks that really come that really want the information. And another, and another caveat, just on a different note, um, that it's not all work and no play. So um, we <laughs> yeah. do have uh, we do have a registration open bar happy hour, and we have a raffle two hour open bar happy happy hour during the time frame. So there's a little bit of uh, fun and frivolity, and we give away, believe it or not, I hope everybody's sitting down, we give away about fifty to $60,000 worth of raffle prizes. Now, but I mean raffle, we don't sell tickets. You get a ticket by coming to the event and, and registering, and then that way everybody has an equal chance of winning a, a car insert, or um, we've given away free dogs. We give away free trips uh, to next year's hits. Um, you get, um, I mean, there's a lot of good um, high-end prizes. A lot of our dog collar companies give us the four and five hundred dollar uh, e-collars that they have, and we have four or five of those companies coming. So um, there's a lot of stuff to be given away, and um, so not only do you have a little bit of fun in DC, but you also work in some good training. Excellent. And of course, so, it's a non-dog conference. So, like you say, you're welcome to bring your dog if it's an issue. Uh, but this is all classroom, non-dog, right? Uh, style conference, style lecture. So we, uh, everybody that wants to find it, it's hitsk9.net. The letter K, the number nine, and all the stuff is there. You can go and register. Yeah, there's an icon. It says Hits 2018. It drops down, and it gives you a registration, hotel. It gives you all the information in those drop-down boxes. It, yeah, www.hits, H-I-T-S-K, the number nine, dot net. Yep, and Alicia, we'll put all that in the show notes. And Alicia is going to be giving away, and she already has some. Uh, she told me she already has something of mine. I'm not sure what it is, but she okay. has a way to do it. So she has, she's going to be giving away, or you guys are going to be giving away a uh, a, a free pass. Uh, worth. Well, we'll just call it the all of us are giving away. Working we Dog Radio hits hand <laughs> in hand. We're giving it away to anybody that listens. So if you didn't listen, you won't know you can win it. That's right, correct. So, and this episode should air right about the first part of April. So, I mean, you got April, May, June, July, August. You got like four or five months to get it set up. So, sure. uh, for whoever wins it. So, yeah. Uh, so, Ted, thanks for coming on. It was super interesting. And it's something that, you know, I mean, I know we could go on for hours as we only talked about a very, very yeah. small, we- like tiny, tiny portion of all of this stuff. So, sure. Well, I hope yeah. it worked out for you and you liked uh, the content. Yeah, it's going to be great, man. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, Ted, you've been on our short list since the start of this, so we really appreciate it. Not a problem, man. I'm glad to do it. And if you want, um, you know, I've already spoken to Andy and uh, Jeff 
and Jeff. So if you want to do Jeff in Denver for Bomb Dog or uh, uh, Jeff in Lakeland for Patrol and or Andy for Andy does unique stuff like he works a gun dog and he trains uh, prison dogs for like cell phones and stuff. And right. um, so all those guys are available to you if you want to do the same thing with one of them to give you more content about you know, different avenues and dog, actual dog handlers, they're all willing to sit down with you for an hour and do a podcast with you. Plus, awesome. we're going to do it at the event itself. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll catch up with them at some point. I know that. <laughs> sure, yeah. All right, man. We appreciate it. All right, man. man. Take care. Thanks, guys. Excellent. See you. Hey, let's get this finished up here. Southern Coast Canine, the letter K, the number 9.com. Sponsor for the episode, Southern Coast Canine offers canine handler, instructor, and trainers courses with a variety of seminars throughout the year. Visit them at southerncoastcanine.com, the letter K, the number 9. Follow them on Facebook and Instagram for up-to-date courses and event schedules. 877-903-DOGS. That's 877-903-3647 to register and find out more about these excellent courses. Also, Southern Coast Canines has an immediate opening for a full-time, multi-purpose canine trainer position, the MPC trainer position. If you want to join a winning team, contact them at the same time. Number email your resume to P Heiser H E I S E R at Southern Coast Canine.com. The letter K and the number nine. We appreciate all the entrance to our big hits giveaway. The winner gets two passes to hits, one custom collar from Working Dog Dry Goods, one trailing harness from Georgia NTC, one 30 ounce mug from Highland Canine, one long sleeve tee from Canine Protected, and one snapback cap from Police Canine Association. Mickey Gross is our big winner. Congrats, Mickey. Hit us up on Facebook or Instagram to claim your prize. There will be more hits giveaways coming soon. Thanks, everyone. Working Dog Radio is edited and co-produced by Dustin Wright at Bracket Designs. Be sure to hit him up at BracketDesigns.com for any branding or content-related work you have. We were graciously granted permission to use this rad music by Brother Deeg. Go buy him a beer at Brother Deeg, spelled D-E-G-E, dot blogspot.com, spelled D-E-G-E, or hit him up on iTunes, Amazon, CD Baby, or any other music streaming stores. Check the show notes for links to both of these creative geniuses.